Hi, and welcome to the Productized Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productized Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Welcome to the Productized Podcast. My name is Andre Marquis and I'm the co-founder of Productized. I'll be your, your host today. For the past few years, we've been doing a series of interviews with product innovators that have been able to beat the ceiling and become successful makers, entrepreneurs, and agents of change. Our mission has always been to inspire, connect, and empower more people to get into product roles. And our guest today is Paul Debailly. Hi, Paul. Welcome. And thank you for being with us today. Uh, hey, Andre. And uh, hey, everyone on chat. And uh, thanks for having me. Sure. So let me just introduce you a little bit to Paul. Um, okay. Paul is a former chief product officer at Join.de, um, a streaming platform launched in Germany in June 2019. And Paul has also an extensive experience building and growing teams and products from zero to millions of monthly active users at Rocket Internet, at Namchi.com, at Join.de, and managing products at scale at the Play Store of Google. Also, Paul's background is mostly consumer in in e-commerce specifically, but also in media streaming and search. And he, he also has some experience on using machine learning to unlock user value. So, Paul, great to have you with us. What are you working right now? What, what, how is your life? We, we know we just, you just left join.de. So, what, how things are going right now? Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess there's been, you know, some confusion. I need to update my LinkedIn. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting. I left join three weeks ago. And I'm, uh, I'm currently, you know, taking some time to think about, you know, some startup ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really, you know, actively recruiting, but uh, the goal is really, you know, to start, you know, my my own business and, you know, or give myself some time, you know, to, uh, you know, to test, to validate some ideas and, uh, and try to see, you know, if anything uh, works out. I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting, you know, trends, interesting, you know, pain points, you know, to, to explore. And so right. that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to, uh, to do. I'm, uh, uh, it's been, it's not been a while since I left joined, but, uh, trying to, to be more, more active on the startup front, I would say. So what, what, what is exciting you right now? What kind of uh, technologies, what kind of sectors are you, uh, betting into? Yeah. Um, well, batting into would be, <laughs> I think, a bit of a of a different uh, of a different topic. But honestly, you know, like like you've said it in the in the introduction, most of my experience, if not all, has been in consumer tech. But funnily enough, I think I want to try to do some B two B at the moment. So what I'm trying to do is to find some niche in in B two B that actually cater to or solve a very clear pain point. That you know that hasn't been solved or that hasn't been solved, you know, to you know in the right way. That's at least in my opinion. So I'm trying to brainstorm, you know, within you know this scope, 
uh, and then you know uh, to to try to come up with with the product. Right. I mean, there's a lot of you know. So you you have the feeling that you want to go into B two B, but it's it's yeah. such a vast space, right? Companies have so many problems, so many departments. Do you have any any silo, any area you want to go into B two B? Exactly. I mean, as you said, it. I think you know what's one one trend that uh, that we've been seeing. You know, like accelerating a lot, maybe in the last uh, one or two years. And I mean, interestingly enough, if you look at a lot of companies, you know, f- that are part of this movement or trend have raised a lot of, you know, like funds in the last two weeks. It's everything related to uh, the no-code, you know, domain. So basically really empowering, I would say, non-tech people or non-engineers to very easily, you know, like uh, understand what workflows they need, uh, and and really, you know, like uh, building those workflows without the need of any kind of code. And I think you know this idea is is very is is very interesting. And I think it it will really empower, you know, like a vast like a proliferation of you know like uh, microservices or micro products across the company. Mm-hmm. And it will allow you know different employees or different teams across the company to experiment much faster and be less dependent on on the backlog of you know the tech teams if you see what right. I mean. the IT so, team so I think there's a lot of very interesting companies that are doing amazing work in the domain like you know Zapier mm-hmm. uh, I mean on the on the much more complicated side you have companies such as you know UiPath you have mm-hmm. Airtable as well but. I think, you know, there's something there and I would love, you know, to be able to, you know, to empower, you know, like, you know, different companies to, you know, to very easily, you know, create, customize, manage, you know, uh, automated processes. I mean, this is, you know, one area that's actually interesting. Yeah, I, I will put you in touch with Alex. He's a Ukrainian guy that has been with us in the, in the productized community for quite yes. a while. And is also very much into doing a no-code startup right now. So, um, yeah, super excited about that. Um, and um, and I, I guess one of one of the questions I had here were that you you were working in California, you were working this fast-paced Silicon Valley environment at Google headquarters, and then you changed to a completely different professional culture um, to Germany in Munich. So what are the main differences, cultural differences and, you know, speed differences that, um, that you found in these two environments? Yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting question. It has many variables to it because even in California, I mean, working at a startup is very different than working at Google. Yeah. And then, you know, like changing geographies, you know, like even like, Maybe working in a big tech company in Europe is very different than working in a big tech company, you know, in California or I would say in the US. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can I can try, you know, to you know to mention, you know, some of the differences, but I would say that the basis to my answer is the fact that all those companies are real tech companies. They are not, you know, like incumbents trying to go through digital transformation, uh, etc. And so the you know, some of the, dif- the, the the differences I've seen is that, l- let's take, for example, the, the topic of product market fit for, mm-hmm. you know, working at Google versus working for, for a startup. I would say that for a startup, you as a PM or as a founder of a startup, you constantly struggle uh, with the concept of product market fit. Right. At, at Google and in bigger companies, I think 
it's not really, you know, like a problem that you have on the top of your mind constantly. Even though I don't want to discount the fact that, you know, Google exper experiments a lot and they, a lot of times, you know, they end up shutting, you know, uh, some some projects or uh, products. So this is, you know, like definitely one of the of the differences. Then, you know, in terms of, you know, like, um, you know, Google versus startups, and then maybe I'll, I'll try to come to, to Europe. I mean, in terms of resource availability, I think in a startup, you need to be much smarter in terms of how you prioritize, how you focus, how you use the, I don't really like the word resources, but how you use, you know, uh, the time your team and and uh, and the effort you know your team is is spending on doing uh, the work, and what's the outcome you know that this work has, uh, the speed of delivery is very different. You know at Google you need to communicate a lot. You need to convince a much you know vaster area of you know stakeholders. I would say that in a startup it's it's much more you know like faster. And if it's not fast, it might be it might be a problem. Data availability is a different. Uh, is a different point as well. I mean, I would say that at Google, we have abundant data versus, you know, in a startup, you need to create those, you know, you need to log the data, you need to, you know, to build the pipeline to be, it's, a, it's definitely a, a learning curve and you don't have the luxury of having really abundant data. But so you need to be, you know, creative using more qualitative feedback, et cetera. Right. And maybe I mentioned, you know, the level of communication uh, that <clears throat> that you need to have, you know, uh, between working at a big company and uh, and at a, at a startup. On the, you know, California versus Germany, um, I mean, I joined, I worked between Germany and London. So a year back, I moved to London to open an engineering office. But I would say I still felt a difference, you know, between working in California and, <clears throat> and in Europe, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, my my answer is based on my guts or my you know my experience and not really based on data, but I would say that the ecosystem, the tech ecosystem in California is much more mature mm -hmm. than what it is today uh, today in Europe, and it feels that you know in uh, in Europe um, people are are getting up to speed with concepts and questions that were you know, solved or that people are more familiar with in, in the U.S., I would say. Uh, like, you know, ways of working, how PM should work with engineers and UX, all those methodologies, etc. I just felt that in the U.S., they've experimented enough and, uh, and there's a more established, you know, PM culture, I would say. Um, and uh, I mean, it it's good or there's no, you know, there's pros and cons, you know, to, to everything. Right. I also felt that in Europe, it's, it's a bit more specialized in terms of, you know, the startups that you have. There's a lot of B2B, a bit less B2C, what I noticed compared to the US, yeah. which is normal because the US is such a big market. Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, like pockets of, you know, verticals, you know, here in London, fintech is extremely, you know, uh, strong. Uh, versus in the U.S., I would say it was a bit more diversified and very, you know, a bit more consumer-heavy than than in Europe. So, uh, how was the lifestyle? Did you like the lifestyle there more than in Europe, or not really? Um, I, I would say that. Uh, look, I would say it's it's very it's very different. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, European working culture is more laid back than than in the U.S. Uh, I felt that in the 
And look, it might be an overgeneralization. When I was at Rocket Internet, it was a very hardworking, very fast-paced, you know, culture. But I, I felt that, you know, like, like, the, like work-life balance is much more, the concept of work-life balance is much more appreciated in Europe than, than in the U.S. It took me some time to adapt, you know, like going from, you know, like California where it was extremely fast paced to, you know, to Munich where people had a different conception uh, of work-life balance, which is very important, you know, when, uh, when you take decisions as, uh, as a leader in a company, which impacts the culture, the, the morale of people, et cetera. So I had to, I definitely had to adapt to better understand, you know, the culture, et cetera. Absolutely. But I would say that I'm pretty happy where I am. What, what was the driver be, be behind that, you know, motivation to make that change? between, you know, fast-paced culture in the U.S. and coming back to Europe and going to what is essentially still a scale-up? Yeah, look, to, to be honest, it was mainly a personal decision. I think, I think when, uh, I mean, California is very, is very far. It's, uh, California is, is great, but it feels like a country by itself, you know, like pretty far away from Europe and from, you know, Lebanon, where my home is actually. And so I think I reached a point where in my career, where I noticed that my tech network is in California, my friends are, you know, are in California, that it was harder to, you know, to stay in touch with the people, you know, at the other, you know, side of the globe. So my decision to go back to Europe was mainly, mainly personal. But at the same time, you know, when I arrived here and I saw, you know, the scale up, I mean, it got me, you know, very motivated to be more involved, to try, you know, to, to share the learnings, you know, or the, or the American perspectives or the Google perspectives, you know, with people, you know, in, in the market and try to bring, you know, maybe a different perspective to the way, you know, PMs are thinking about, you know, problems, ways of working, et cetera, in Europe. Mm -hmm. So you said you, you lived your early years, your youth in, in Beirut, in Lebanon, then you went to London as an undergraduate and you know, eventually moved to the U.S. Um, had to do an MBA. So what, what drove you to have such a dynamic and international journey in your, um, during your studies, during your professional career? Because there is for sure another Paul that is li still living in, in Beirut, still in Lebanon, and he is he, doing probably something else than being a PM. So what was your driver? Yeah. You know, like it's, uh, <laughs> I never really thought about it, you know, in retrospect about, but, uh, I, you know, like nothing was, you know, really planned. It was really, you know, like a step-by-step -step and, and really thinking, you know, what's the best, you know, next step for me. Um, look, I mean, I think when you come from a country, when, a, when you come from a small country, it's going to be easier to understand what I'm what I'm going to say now. But yeah, Lebanon is a very Portugal is a, is a fairly small yeah, country. So you might you might relate to, to you might relate to my story here. Lebanon is a small country. When we when we were studying in high school, so apart from the Lebanese baccalaureate, we would do the French baccalaureate, we would do the international baccalaureate. I mean, teachers in Lebanon were teaching us the American in geography, the American map, the French map, the Japanese map, before teaching us the Lebanese, you know, like uh, map. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, and we studied in French, in English and in Arabic. So we always, you know, had this uh, outlook, you know, towards, you know, getting to know, you know, what's beyond or what's, 
you know, outside of our of our country. So I would say that at least myself and a lot of you know my classmates were very curious, you know, to discover to discover more. Um, I mean, one very sad, you know, fact or or anecdote about Lebanon, you know, like it's a, it's a country that has a big trade deficit. We import a lot, but what people say is that Lebanon exports a lot of you know talent, a lot of people, you know, to to the world. And so, I mean, for me, you know, like the first step was to go to London to study engineering. Uh, I mean, I was inspired. I mean, again, I don't want to make it very boring with my personal stories. No, it's not. I think it's super exciting because it's where you're coming from. And that really tells the story, right? Yeah. I was personally inspired by, you know, my cousins and other people I looked up you know, mm-hmm. to who actually went to the US and to London, you know, to study. So I ended up, you know, applying and and I was really interested, you know, to get to know people of, you know, you know, different countries, different perspectives. Uh, and so this was, you know, a very big driver, a uh, big driver for me. Now, between London and the US, I actually worked. And so I was in tech before going to the US. And one of the main reasons why I decided to go to the US was to try to go, was to try to actually work in a tech company in the U.S. Because I always, you know, felt and thought that, you know, if you want to try to get, you know, the the best tech experience out there, Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point in your career, you need to experience, you know, working in the U.S. So that that really drove, you know, my motivation to go and study in Boston. Okay. Okay. Right. That's, that was a smart thing to do, right? Um, in in retrospect, um, you know, I can say you had a very um, or a rather fast progression in your product career. So, um, when when did you realize that? Was there a specific moment when you realized you wanted to go into product? Was it during the MBA? Because lots of MBA students suddenly understand, oh, I'm an engineer, I know management. You know, product management is the way to go. When was you know the trigger? Yeah, sure. So it was actually way be, way before the MBA. So mm. uh, it was basically during my time at Rocket Internet. But mm. so when I graduated from engineering, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And for multiple reasons, I ended up working in mergers and acquisitions, so in investment banking in, in London. And I quickly realized that... You Why know, would an engineer do that? <laughs> no, you know, back in the days, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a very interesting... Day. That was, you know, that was pre-crisis, right? 2005, yeah. 2006, so... But, uh, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a big topic. But I quickly realized, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. Mm. And I didn't really know what, what, I, what I liked, you know, to be, to be honest. I knew that I really liked you know, data, you know, I was, I, w- I was analytical. I knew that I liked, you know, to, to talk to customers and, mm. and, you know, to have this, you know, customer approach. And at the same time, one thing that was very important for me, which is why I really liked engineering as well, was the ability to build my own product. And what, what was really missing for me in investment banking was that I was advising someone to do something with their own product, but I didn't have a skin in the game. I did not own this financial you know, product. And so I kind of had those guidelines in mind, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I was 
when I got the opportunity to work at Rocket, they, um, it was right at the start of the international expansion. So I joined them in Dubai, actually, where we started, you know, this, the, this fashion e-commerce company called Namshi.com. And so at the beginning, I was doing a bit, I was one of the first employees there. So I was doing a bit of everything, which was mainly about building the company with the, the co-founders. So I built the customer service team, you know, hired people, defined the processes, the KPIs, then hired, some, you know, someone to take my position. Then I built the offline marketing team uh, and I, I did exactly the same. But I was, what I actually noticed... So that, that, that Was that during Rocket Internet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Nanshi is actually... So that, that's the Rocket Internet manual, right? That's yeah, the, exactly. the playbook. So Nanshi is actually a Rocket venture. It's not a... Right. It's not a different venture. Uh, so, so basically when I was, you know, building those teams, I, I was, I felt, I mean, I was basically doing PM job as well, because I was thinking about, you know, the, the CRM we needed. I was thinking about, you know, the, the customer service, you know, tool, uh, how we can improve it, what feature, what are the problems we're seeing, what features are needed, but I didn't really had the, the, the product hat. And at the same time, you know, what you, what, I think you, you notice in a lot of startups, you don't need the product team at the beginning. At the beginning, it's mostly, you know, the founder that comes, who comes, you know, with this idea and the engineering team. And they try, you know, to make it work until, you know, you reach a point where, you know, there's no more roadmap. You need someone to really think, you know, about the product vision, to do some product discovery work, to, to better, you know, help the teams to collaborate, et cetera. And that's when... That's when I, we actually noticed at Namshi that we needed a product team. And that's when I actually decided to step in and to lead the product team at, uh, at Namshi. And this was my entry point into product management. And, you know, from there, I, I directly knew that this was, uh, this is for, for me. I mean, it's, it's, it was the right intersection, you know, between the business team, the engineering team, even though I consider that product is part of the engineering team because I love working with engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I did my MBA, I knew that I wanted to, to, uh, to stay in product. I did not want a career change, but I wanted to have a full, you know, to be able to recruit for companies such as Google, et cetera, in the US, basically. And how hard was for you to get into, into a product role in the US after the MBA? Um, look, to, to be honest, I, I mean, I had, a lot, I, I had product experience, so I could leverage a lot of, I, I could leverage, you know, my experience at Rocket Internet, building, you know, this fashion e-commerce, mm -hmm. you know, scaling it, uh, you know, managing, uh, recruiting, and uh, managing product managers. Uh, you know, talk, I had, I had, uh, you know, I could talk about, you know, met the metrics I improved. How did I improve, you know, the customer service? Uh, sorry, the conversion rate of the of the e-commerce website, etc. So for me, it was, it. I, I would say it wasn't, you know, I mean, I had to put the efforts, of course, in the interviews, etc. But it was not, you know, out of out of nowhere. Out of the blue, yeah. yeah. And did, did the MBA actually help you in that in that uh, job pursuit? Look, I, I think the MBA definitely helped me uh, in terms of getting a strong network. Mm -hmm. So, so, and and I think this is the number one selling point of of a good of a good MBA school, because you notice that 
before you join a company, you can tap into the network to try to get, you know, interviews. Yeah. And when you join a company, you, know, you notice that there's a lot of alumni from, you know, from yeah, schools who you can easily talk to, have, you know, things and memories in common, etc. So, so it helped me in this, in this respect. But in terms of, you know, the skills uh, of a product manager, I would say that I didn't really focus on this in my MBA. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, interestingly enough, there's a lot of people who were in finance, who worked in private equity, who actually focused on building product skills during the MBA and ended up doing a career change going from Blackstone and KKR to Google and Facebook, for example. So it was definitely helpful for, uh, for them from a skills perspective. So you eventually arrived to the streaming media landscape at Join. Um, and it's, it's very exciting, you know, lots of things going on. Lots of players have joined the market lately. Um, you know, now we have Netflix, Amazon, HBO, Disney Plus. They, and, and Disney Plus was actually the new kid on the block coming really, uh, coming in and growing really fast. So how do you create a differentiated value proposition with so many Big players, actually, big players in the market, right? Um, and I guess for Join, maybe it was because it was German content. But what was what was you know the insight you guys had to say? Yeah. Let's do a media streaming um, platform for the German market. Sure, sure. So you're not very far. I mean, content is king, you know, in in, uh, in streaming. But you know, like interestingly enough, I mean, back to your question on the difference between Europe and the US. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a lag between the streaming uh, world, you know, in the US and and in, in Europe. I mean, what what we tried to do at Join was a bit what Hulu tried to do ten years earlier in the in the US. Yeah. And so, look, I started at Join before launching the the product, before there was you know any customers, and when we were you know thinking about you know Join Join uh, you know the value proposition, etc. I think. Um, one one very important uh, thing we considered was we acknowledged that we were late in the game, and so we really needed you know to differentiate our, our ourselves. Uh, two, uh, we we note I mean we noticed that there's still uh, a lot of uh, demand and interest in broadcaster content such as The Voice, Germany's Next Top Model, The Mass Singer, etc. So there's still a lot of you know interest in those shows, but the real issue is in the distribution of those shows. People, especially the new generations, don't want to get cable anymore. They don't want to, you know, use this, this broadcast, you know, traditional broadcaster type of distribution. Yeah. So that's where okay. we notice that we really need, you know, to, you know, to change, you know, the way this content that's, that's already, that's already known, you know, like that's, that, that has already an, an audience. Uh, so that's how, so we noticed that we really needed to improve the way it's distributed. So, so one, so content, two, distribution, and three, we, 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 we tried, you know, different business models. So we started, you know, with a free offering. So the AVOD, so the ad supported, uh, offering. So for Germany, it was very important, you know, to offer a free service. Uh, people didn't mind, you know, like uh, uh, the, watching, ads. Uh, watching ads, I would say to a certain extent, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and we thought that if we go directly into SBOT, so sub subscription, you know, VOD, right. 
we would be directly perceived at least, you know, going, you know, head to head with the big American players, you know, Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, etc. Mm -hmm. So, so we definitely got, you know, a lot of traction, you know, from uh, from uh, from Ava. The free, the the, the Ava, right? Yeah. And you know, to prove that this is such a harsh market, you had cases like Quibi last year with a very loud failure in 2020. They got over one billion dollars uh, investment, and still, they, you know, using the only German word that I know, they kaput really, really fast. So what, what is thing happened there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure you guys kind of follow the story because you you were born more or less at the same time, and you probably were like looking at what these guys were doing there. Yeah, I honestly were looking a bit more at Netflix and Amazon Prime and uh, the German competitors out there. Mm -hmm. too. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the Quibi, I mean, story is interesting. Honestly, I've I, I haven't tried it, so I could I I could tell you, you know, my my analysis or perception based on you know what what I read or yeah. or at least you know like trying to relate it to my to my own experience. I mean, I, I just felt that first, I mean. I mean, their product was not really validated. Mm -hmm. So, so they their whole concept was, you know, mobile first, you know, short form content. I mean, not as short as TikTok, but still, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, you know, like 10 minute types of content. Yeah, but, 10, 15 minutes. And then, yeah. yeah, then the pandemics came and people were not commuting <laughs> anymore, right? Exactly, exactly. So, and primarily on the phone. So, I, I don't really know what kind of validation they did, but I mean, believe me, we had to do a lot of, you know, validation to, to really prove that German users were interested in, in join, that we had enough traction, et cetera. So is it, is it, is it there, um, Paul, is it there uh, a contradiction because, you know, you're, you're coming, you're, you're coming from Silicon Valley and it's all about products, all about validation, it's all about product market fit. And suddenly in this ecosystem where you would be expecting to have a mature venture capital, and, and obviously you do, to say, okay, guys, want to go something new that's really not so validated because it's not like, you know, big flat screen like Netflix is doing. So that's, we know that works, right? Yeah. Shouldn't someone say, hey, prove me that there is a product market fit for this new kind of uh, content and then I'll give you money. The thing is, they got so much money. They, they got almost $2 billion um, investment before actually going um, into market. And that is at least surprising to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think the reason why they closed is that they were way, way under their uh, subscription projection. Right. So, so I think this is, you know, bottom line. I think they really failed to prove, you know, any kind of traction, you know, at least, you know, putting aside, you know, of course, I mean, the investment was <laughs> colossal, right? But, but I mean, showing traction, I mean, especially, you know, for this type of company was extremely yeah. important. And it looked like, at least from what I noticed, you know, from the Play Store downloads and the App Store downloads, it, you know, it looked like, you know, the, the number of installs was actually decelerating, you know, and not really accelerating. So, right. so they were in a, in, a, in a tough position. And then, yeah, the launch timing was, did not help them at all. People were sitting at home watching TV, right? And not really, you know, like when you're at home and you're, and you're using your mobile, you're directly in competition with TikTok and YouTube, right? So, 
So it was, so, I think it was, a, they had a, they had it tough, but. Uh, yeah, they had to do tough decisions. Speaking about tough decisions, as a product manager, um, do you have any tough decisions that you can tell us about? Uh, some learning uh, hard, hard lessons learned of tough decisions. And when should product managers take those uh, hard decisions of saying, you know, maybe we should just stop this or it's, let's go other way. So any, any clues on that? Yeah. Um, um, look, I, I think for me, the way I look at product management, I really look at it as, as a responsibility. Mm. I think it's a responsibility. So every PM, in my opinion, has a responsibility towards, you know, the user of their product and the impact, you know, the product changes have, uh, has on the life, on the lives of those, of those users. And so, so, you know, the launch decision, whether, you know, not to launch or, 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 you know, or to launch the, go, the launch, you know, go, no, go needs to really needs to be based, you know, on the impact that you're having, the outcomes you want to create, uh, et cetera. But in terms of, you know, like a tough decision to the first, uh, you know, to the first part of your question, um, Look, I think when I was, you know, PM on search, um, so for the Play Store and for Google.com, I think I felt a lot of responsibility towards my users in terms of, you know, whenever I would do a ranking change, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say on the Play Store, right? I would, let's say I would, I would change the way some apps or games are ranked. Mm -hmm. So basically, if, uh, if, if, um, if a kid, you know, search for, you know, um, games, I mean, the games that I'm going to show him are literally going to impact her or his summer, right? And I'm and we're talking about games here, so so there's a lot of responsibility towards showing the most useful, you know, search results, you know, to uh, to our users. And so I had this, uh, we had this very big issue at uh, at Google at some point where in the autocomplete of search, yeah. we were showing, I would say, abusive. Um, auto completions in terms of, you know, tracking your partner, uh, tracking your spouse, tracking your wife, right? I mean, I mean, this is not ethical. It's not legal and it's, it's pretty bad, right? It's abuse. It's, it's, we, we, we put it under, you know, the abusive, you know, section. And so my, my team, uh, my team and I, we had to, you know, work very hard to one, uh, classify, you know, uh, to catch all those, you know, instances, because one, we had to do it in all languages across the globe, and we had to do it in a record, in a record time, because it was that bad. I mean, if we wait one more... Yeah, that's, that's what the, the machine learning algorithm pops up, because that's what people exactly. are wanting, right? It's like, oh, tracking my partner, but then you have to protect people from themselves, right, in a way. Yeah. Exactly. So, so basically talking about machine learning. So basically we ended up, you know, using machine learning for better, you know, like, uh, uh, for, for better query understanding, query classification, et cetera. But then it became very hard, you know, as a, as a PM, you know, when you, when you use machine learning, you look at metrics such as precision and recall, for example. So yeah. what's a good enough precision to be comfortable launching? Uh, you know, an improvement to this abusive use case, right? I mean, if the if the use case was not abusive, you would be okay. I would be fine with a lower precision. But since it's an abusive use case, you need 
to be comfortable enough with the level of precision you have while, you know, not taking too much time to improve this, this precision. Honestly, those were, you know, very tough, you know, product decisions I had to take because they had a direct negative impact, impact on the user. You know, on the users. Yeah. So can you, can you tell us about, um, since we started talking about machine learning, right? Um, some of the top product management trends that you see down the road and some of the disruptions either for 2021 or for the next years? Yeah, so I, so, so, so basically, I mean, as I said at the beginning, I, I really think about product management as, you know, like being part of tech. So basically, you know, like any changes in the way, you know, like uh, uh, PMs, you know, do discovery about some topics, et cetera, the roadmaps, anything, all those are actually driven by, you know, tech trends. And so if I think, you know, about, you know, tech trends, look, I, I think, look, there's COVID. <laughs> so, so if the word post-COVID is completely different from the word pre-COVID, right? No one can, I mean, I don't believe that we can continue developing our roadmap and thinking about product post-COVID, the way we were doing, you know, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, pre There's a change in the mindset of consumers, the way, you know, they interact with technology, the way, you know, they're, uh, they're willing, you know, to use the technology. Uh, I think there will be, a, there's an emergence of a lot of new fields, you know, post-COVID. Mm -hmm. And even for the existing fields, like, you know, food delivery, uh, et cetera, mm -hmm. there, there, uh, there is a customized, there is a, adaptation, you know, to all the use cases and really like product managers need to think about, you know, those, those new trends. Um, I mean, some of the trends I'm excited about is uh, so one working from not working from home, but I would say working from anywhere. Right. right. So making sure, you know, we adapt, you know, our product discovery, our, the way we, we conduct design sprints, et cetera, you know, to, any kind of, you know, like uh, working, you know, you know, you know, set, set, set up uh, mm -hmm. the way we communicate, et cetera. So I think working from anywhere, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, like ideas that are going to, that are going to come to solve, you know, problems linked to, to this. Then there's, of course, machine learning, which honestly interests me a lot and which uh, you, you, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if we focus only about, you know, machine learning for media, I mean, Taking a step back, I think, you know, like MN models are getting, you know, much more precise and efficient. And, and I think they're becoming like a key part of, you know, the whole experience. And if you look at, at for example, like join Netflix, you know, all those media experiences, a lot of ML is used, you know, for content discovery, for personalization, uh, for, for search, uh, mm -hmm. et cetera. You know, a lot of ML is used in the different, you know, touch points, you know, of the, of the user journey, right. you know, the way we do landing page optimization, ads targeting, et cetera. And even if you think about, you know, the player and the playout process, there's a lot of, you know, NLP that's used for audio description, automatic clip creation, et cetera. So this definitely excites me a lot. And since we spoke about it, you know, at the beginning, uh, there's the whole no-code movement as well. Yeah. Uh, that will, uh, I think, that will impact. You know, that will bring. You know. Uh, and how, how do you think it will impact the product, uh, the product manager's life? Is it because suddenly product managers they can prototype faster without going to the engineering team and and kind of 
we have a perception of what works, what doesn't work without being so much reliant on the engineering team? What's what what do you think the, the impact will come for the PM? Role? Yeah, actually, yeah, interesting. I think I, I was thinking about it as a more as a as a whole as a as a bigger trend. Yeah. But but look, even the no code, I think it it could be used by some of the engineering teams, right? Yeah. Like plugging into APIs, etc. But definitely, I mean, PMs will definitely be able to iterate, you know, much faster on, uh, they'll be able to, you know, to mock or to wireframe, you know, things, you know, much, much, fa much faster with, a, with, you know, better plugins, um, uh, etc. So, but I think the no code, you know, trend is very interesting. Most, it's very interesting as well for business teams, such as you know the, the marketing team, the customer service team, etc., right. who will, will be able to create experiences, maybe with the help of product managers, mm -hmm. without you know uh, being you know blocked. I would say by you know by the engineering team. Very interesting. So I have like a, a last question uh, for you before we jump to some of the questions that we got from our audience beforehand. Sure. Um, what do you think? It's a great tech ecosystem that you should not miss nowadays. So if you are, if you have, I don't know, if it's someone that wants to go into tech or you're already into tech, you, you obviously said your American experience, your US experience was important for you. Uh, but do you have any specific ecosystems in mind that you would recommend people to experience um, if they have the chance to do that? And by ecosystem, do you mean geographies or sectors? You know, geographies. Um, so, you know, either Silicon Valley, London, Berlin, Munich, whatever um, you think would be interesting. Or, or even uh, Vietnam or Indonesia. Yeah, or, wherever. Yeah, it's uh, up, up to you. It's your choice. You know, look, I, I mean, I mean, look, I, I would say that more and more, I mean, the look, the, there are great companies, you know, and even, you know, you, you know, like it's very interesting because people, um, people measure or correlate the success of a tech ecosystem to the number of unicorns in this ecosystem. Right. And it might or might not be, you know, a, a good way to, to see it. But I would say, you know, in, in Europe, in the US, I mean, even in Asia, I mean, there's a lot of great companies. More and more, there's a lot of great talent, right? So, so I would say, I, I would, for me, the most, the most important is to really work on, on, on a problem that you're excited about. Because if you're not excited about the problem, if you don't have a feel uh, to the problem, to, you know, to the users, I mean, it's going to be very hard, you know, for you to be creative and to really build a roadmap that's going to be exciting because at the end of the day, as a product manager, you will need to get the buy-in from the designers, from the engineers, from the business side. You don't have authority over them. Yeah. You have, you have the, you have the chance to convince them that your roadmap is the right one. So I would say definitely, you know, like no, no, uh, I would say no preference over, you know, like a certain geography or, uh, or sector. Okay. 